Welcome to another episode of Discover Ag brought to you in part by Case IH. I am your host, Natalie, a rancher and pharmacist from Nebraska. And I'm Tara, a dairy farmer and environmental scientist from New Mexico. And together we are your co-host and we are bringing you our professional farming opinions on a variety of trending topics in the ag and food space. We are hoping that it will help you better understand our food system and feel connected to the hands that feed us. I have to say this is going to sound a little weird, but I'm so happy we're back in our respective studios 700 miles away from each other because I feel like whenever we're together recording live, we have the worst technology luck on stage at Case because we have a interview with Case coming to you guys that we recorded live from Farm Progress. We're bringing that to you guys next week. We even had issues that day and we had like a professional sound crew in the back of Case's booth and we still had issues. We're like doomed when we're together. We're just meant to record from Nebraska and New Mexico. There's no other way to put it. I am glad we're back in our perspective places. Um, we were at Farm Progress, which we'll get into. But I have to tell you that traveling with you, we do not vibe. We are not travel buddies. I don't know how else to say it, but we are on very different wavelengths when we travel. And um, your airport, airport Natalie, gives me anxiety. I was going to say we travel fine together. It's we have different airport personalities. You are very laid back airport personality and I am not. I don't know what happens to me, but something overcomes my whole body and I become very anxious and time aware <laughs> and you do not. You are loosey goosey. <laughs> I am one of the people that is like, there is no need to get to the airport more than 45 minutes in advance. You are like a two hour girly. Uh One and a half hour to two is like my sweet spot window. And it's just so funny. We just, for how many things that we are similar on, this is not one of them. Maddie is saying, producer Maddie is saying she is like me. Like there is just two different types of people. So I actually would love to hear from our discos. What type of travel person are you? Are you a on-time like extra time or are you uh, like skirting in by flying in by the seat of your pants kind of traveler? Natalie versus Tara. Mm. So we should get in though to farm progress and what, how it was and kind of a little maybe like recap. Yeah, go ahead. Kick it off. Yeah. So uh, we actually started farm progress with being on a panel for the propane education and research council. And it was a panel with a ton of other people. It was a really large panel. Actually, it was probably the biggest panel I've ever been on, but it was a fascinating conversation up there talking about propane and just like energy uses on farms, ranches in general. Yeah, it was fun. Um, we got asked on one of the questions because we did some podcast interviews on uh, farm for profit and just some different things when we're there beyond what we did for propane. And they asked one of our, you know, one of my favorite things, I guess, about being agriculture. And I said, the people, I love the people in agriculture. And I felt that same way at farm progress. Like you just walk into the show and I feel like you just know you're kind of home, you know, you feel like whatever tent you walk into, whatever building, I just feel safe. Like these are my people. And I felt that way about the panel too. It was just really fun to meet. I had met some of the people on the panel before in person, um, Annalise, Mod Farm Chick and uh, uh, Sharky Shark Farmer. But it was really fun to meet the Farm for Profit guys in person and then also meet Barn Talk. We have talked to you guys about Barn Talk before the podcast, um, his dad, Sawyer, Sawyer and his dad, Torque. And it was so fun to meet them. They're great. I mean, Sawyer wasn't there, but his dad was great. I just imagine they're a really awesome duo. Yeah, it was cool to hear all of the different uses, I guess, of propane on the different farms from like the massive large scale, like using propane to for grain drying 
grain bin drying. I'm not saying that right. Um, all the way down to like you saying how you use it for branding. Um, so I just appreciated everyone's perspective there. I will say if you want to learn more about propane, it was it's a much more fascinating topic than Natalie or I ever realized until we started diving in to the propane conversation. But if you want to know about how propane is trying to achieve uh, carbon neutral and how they are a renewable fuel, fuel source, go back to episode 96 and give it a listen where we interview um, one of their really great representatives that gave us a ton of information. I remember when we recorded that episode, I went into it saying that propane was not sexy and that I learned a ton about it and that I pretty much treated propane like the underdog. And now for me, it is the Cinderella story. And I said the same thing when we're on the panel. I just said, I I didn't really appreciate propane for what it did in agriculture. I was not aware and how kind of encompassing it is for our operations. And then just how, I guess, pivotal it could be for a lot of producers is we're moving forward trying to hit some of these sustainability goals, how it can help us reach them. Um, producer Maddie did say that that is one of her favorite episodes. And now she tells everyone about propane. <laughs> I do so feel like funny. that. I feel like I'm like, a I like him dropping facts about propane all the time. I'm like, did you know propane's American made? Did you know we export more propane? I'm like, just <sighs> dropping the truth bombs everywhere. Only on Discover Ag. Well, today is Labor Day that we're recording this. So I guess when this comes out on Thursday, I want to say to everyone, I hope everyone had a a fun and safe Labor Day weekend holiday and now is back at it for the week. (laughs) Back in the grind. Out to office, as I like to say. I know I've had that actually um, in my notes. I have not talked to you about your out to office vibe on your page and I've been meaning to bring it up. I think it's such a fun thing to be a part of. I know we could move it over to discover. No, I feel like it's, it's your thing. I love it for you. All right. Well, should we move into the discovery of the week for the word of the week? Heck yeah. Okay. I'm so I'm interested to know if you've heard this one because I knew it was a word and I've heard it before, but it is a word I never use. And when it popped up on my daily word, I was like, I should be using it more. So here it is. Gamut. 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 How many times? How many times are you going to play it for us, Natalie? Three. I think three is like, I mean, it's like a universal number. Magic number. Now you yeah. decided. Okay. Gamut. Yes, that is a word I know about. Yeah. Can you use it for in a sentence for me, please? Mm-hmm. It's a noun, the full range or extent of something. The activities offered by the summer camp for adults ran the gamut from needlepoint to zip lining, meaning there were plenty of options to suit everyone's interests. I feel like that's Discover Ag. We just offer the gamut of the food industry. That's very true. That's a very good um, noun to describe us. I just feel like it's one of those words that would can really expand and take your vocabulary to the next level. And it's not hard to use. It's not hard to remember. Like, come on, you guys, we can use gamut. We can do this. I agree. I feel like I do use it actually occasionally. I'm trying to think of how I would use it in a sentence, but I guess it'd be like, I really like we ran the gamut of activities Mm -hmm. this weekend. Like that, I think your example was a really great example. I feel like I use spectrum way too much. I'm going to try and use gamut instead. Mm, Okay. All right. Challenge accepted. Okay. So before we move into the articles for this week, we do want to thank one of our sponsors. Discover Ag is brought to you in part by Case IH to the men and women at Case IH. Farming is a way of life, a life they live every day on millions of acres across North America. Get to know the farmers who work at Case IH and see how they bring that perspective into everything Case IH does. Visit builtbyfarmers.com to see their stories and to even share your own. Built by Farmers, Case IH, a proud sponsor of the Discover Ag podcast. And we had we said this last week a little bit, but we had the best time with them um, at Farm Progress as well. It was great, like getting to see everybody that we talk to in email so regularly and um, connect with them. They were such an incredible team. 
I do love being a part of the Case family. They're a good family to have adopt you, for sure. Totally. Completely agree. All right, you guys. The first article you need to discover this week, title Burger King Faces Legal Claim Over Size of Whopper. Burger King must face a lawsuit that alleges it makes the Whopper burger appear larger on its menu than in reality than it is in reality. A U.S. judge has ruled. Okay, my very first question when reading this was like, who are these plaintiffs? Like, who is getting the money if they win? I, I just feel like this is a lawsuit made up by lawyers, which is actually kind of interesting because there is a whole gamut of lawsuits mm. being filed. Thank you. Thank you. Um, being filed against fast food chains for like false advertisement. And it is by the same two lawyers on all of the suits. So it kind of, it, I feel like it is a lawyer driven lawsuit. There is like one lawyer out there who's an expert in this and they just call them in for this. But I wrote down the same thing that it kind of blows my mind. Uh, rivals McDonald's and Wendy's and also Taco Bell, which we'll kind of dive into. They're all facing similar lawsuits in the S and I just like, what has the world come to kind of, you know? So I feel like I kind of kept going back and forth that I was like, what is the world coming to? Seriously, we're suing over whether you think like your burger at your fast food joint looks like the menu option. But at the same time, I do think maybe there's like a bigger thing here of like false advertisement or like misleading claims or misleading labels, like maybe a bigger picture of like companies taking a little bit more responsibility for what they are putting out there about food. And I I feel like that's like taking it to an extreme. And I, I don't know that that's where I want to go. But I do feel like a part of me is like, be open, be honest, be truthful and represent, you know, the food at your restaurant the correct way. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. And I can see that. And then I read things like, quote, overflow the bun, end quote, yeah. <laughs> and 35% larger with more than double the amount of meat compared to was actually served to customers. And I kind of get like pushed back into like, this is a joke realm. Yeah, the I did have to chuckle, though, when they placed the ad next to the burger the guy got. And it was really sad and pathetic. Like it was not the ad. It was a stark difference, very stark difference between. But it, at the same note, it's like take responsibility for yourself. Everyone knows going into placing your order that that is not really what the Whopper looks like on the commercials or whatever respective chain it is. Yeah, the photo. Um, one time we had to do something for dairy and we actually had, what was it called? I think it was called like a food... Um, oh my gosh, I'm totally blanking on the word, but basically like a food stylist. That's what it was. And their job is to make food look pretty in videos and photographs. And it's crazy the extent they go to to make every like a piece of pizza look exactly how they want it. And so it's like, obviously, Burger King is using someone like that to make their burger look good. And they even said, we are not required to make our burger look like the ad. <laughs> um, producer Maddie, she's jumping in a lot today. We, we missed her the last couple of weeks. She hasn't been on with us. So she's she's given us her full, um, all her thoughts on everything. But she said the Whopper is her favorite fast food burger. Hmm, interesting. I've never had the Whopper. I've never actually eaten at Burger King even. Really? Never? Mm -hmm. not one. Never. Not one time. One fun fact about me. I am a creature of habit. Same thing over and over again. If I find something I like, why disrupt it? Why change it? If it's not broke, don't fix it, you guys. So in my past, when I ate fast food, it was 100 Mickey D's. I mean, I hate to say it, but I, you know this about me. I'm a Mickey D's fan. I love a good McDonald's everything pretty much. So I have eaten at Burger King, but it is very rare. Back to said article. Uh, the judge actually is going to have it go forward with jurors. And his quote was, the jurors are going to tell us what reasonable people think. 
comparing the ad to the food they got. So we will see how reasonable the average juror is. I thought it was interesting um, jumping to when we talked about how Taco Bell's has a suit filed against them that's kind of the same. The person who filed that said a lot of the claims are built on deception from misleading inaccuracy and deceptive, kind of like you talked about with the food marketing. But for Taco Bell, the plaintiff also brought in that the ads are financially damaging to customers who are not getting the amount of beef, beans, and other fillings that they paid for. They're causing customers to order food that they wouldn't have otherwise ordered and that the photos of those menu items are also luring customers away from competitors' restaurants. I don't know. I mean, are they? Natalie's been going to McDonald's and not Burger (laughs) King for her whole life. So not very compelling. Um, Some of the money side of things, Taco Bell, the lawsuit for Taco Bell, they are seeking $500 per item sold between July 31st, 2020 and whatever the ends up being the final like deposition for legal action date. I thought that was an interesting math equation. Like who decided that? Like it's worth $500 per item sold. So that's going to add up really quickly of how much uh, money Taco Bell is going to owe. I found a lawsuit of a Florida jury that awarded $800,000 in damages to a seven-year-old girl who suffered, quote, mental anguish when a chicken McNugget fell on her thigh, causing her a second degree burn. The lawyers of the family had asked for $15 million originally, and they settled on the $800,000. Oh, man. Isn't back to my original statement. What is the world come to? I will say, though, one positive. I mean, I'm pro adding more meat in all of these burgers (laughs) and burritos and everything. Like, sure, let's add double the patty sizes and way more of the beef in the Taco Bell. We like the bun overfloweth. We do like the bun to overflow with. Uh, I got some interesting facts about McDonald's or McDonald's. Here we go. Oops. Sorry, Burger King. About Burger King and Taco Bell. First of all, Burger King is called Hungry Jack's in Australia, not Burger King. And Taco Bell has a new like fancy upscale version called the Taco Bell Cantina. And it has like open kitchen concept, custom menus. It has specialty alcoholic beverages. And best part. If you go to the one in Vegas, you can get married in it. For $770, you can book a wedding package. Your bow tie will look like a sauce package. Your garter (laughs) will look like a sauce package. (laughs) Maddie says, sign me up. (laughs) You get custom t-shirts to say Mr. and Mrs. like Taco Bell. So I can't. Just in case. If anyone is looking for a wedding venue, $770 Taco Bell Cantina in Vegas is all yours for like one hour. Producer Maddie will be there. I will not. Sorry. I'll sit this one out. I mean, if I knew someone that was doing it, I'd probably go just because it'd be like so funny. Actually, I say that. But in all reality, I think a Vegas wedding would be so fun to attend as a guest. I completely agree. Okay. Well, that wraps us up for the first article. Moving into our second article. This article is actually brought to you guys by Morning Ag Clips. We've talked about them before on our last two episodes, uh, but they are... America's number one source for ag news. And you can get so many great different articles across the ag and food space um, from Morning Ag Clips. So go check them out. Click on the link. We'll you know share to stories as we always do, but uh, you'll be able to click and go check out their website. Check out this article. Yeah, we had a lot pulled from them that we couldn't decide between. I do feel like they are bringing the news right now in a really good manner that, um, like I said, we just we couldn't pick. But diving into the article we did pick from them, title American Farmland, Why Are Investors Turning to This Asset Class? 
I think we chose this because we talk a lot about foreign ownership here um, of farmland as well as like celebrity, you know, investment. Bill Gates is probably what you're thinking of. China, we've talked about. So two great examples. And I feel like we always give stats about the topic and um, put it kind of into perspective, but I don't think we've ever delved into kind of like the why behind it. And so that's kind of what this article um, did. And I thought it was pretty interesting. It was fascinating. Actually, it opened up with a stat that I was pretty shocked by that the USDA uh, reports with inflation in adjusted net farm income in 2022 was 8.3% higher than 2021 and is the highest it's been since 1973. Really shocked me. I was not expecting uh, that opening fact. You just love your stats, your number stats specifically. I, I do. I'm, I hope everybody likes them as much as me. They're probably like, no more stats. <laughs> but one of the reasons that this is such a great investment, investing in farmland, is because you have the returns, obviously, from like the actual crop, what's generated there, and then increasing land value. Like it's a double whammy for investors. Yeah. The article quoted, farmland investments offer many benefits for the owners, including a natural hedge against inflation, attractive returns despite low volatility, excellent source of passive income, and unrelated to any other class of assets, and availability of user-friendly investment platforms, which we've always said. It makes sense. Like when people get all up in arms kind of about, you know, whatever celebrity, mostly Bill Gates, owning farmland, I'm like, you have to stick, take a step back and look at the big picture and yes, you could go down the concerns of, you know, hands and people owning land that shouldn't be, but it's not like, it's not odd for them to be doing it. Like it makes sense. I don't think it's like a double compound of, we have to be worried about like, why are they doing it? I mean, again, you can go down conspiracy, but at the root of it, like if they're a businessman, it's very appealing. Yeah, I agree. Um, we've talked about Bill Gates a lot. Bill Gates made the headlines in 2020 um, when he became the country's largest private landowner. But he has since been outdone by several people. Uh, Ted Turner, the media mogul, owns about 2 million acres of farmland. Uh, and then Jeff Bezos, Amazon founder, owns just under a half a million acres. Uh, there was also, they mentioned Dr. Oz, which kind of surprised me. But Dr. Oz is out there buying up farmland, apparently. <laughs> so random. Uh, one of the stats that blew mind was, my mind was, according to a 2021 estimate by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, USDA, about 30% of all American farmland is owned by non-farmers. I did not know that. Look at you out there stealing my stats. I know. Mm -hmm. I thought that was pretty crazy. And then out of the nine or 900 million acres of cropland nationwide, about almost 40% is rented out to farmers. Mm -hmm. Which, I mean, we lease a lot of our land, so I'm not really... Um, shocked by like lease numbers, rented, owned kind of value when it comes to uh, people who are operating in agriculture. Uh, almost a decade ago, Warren Buffett talked about investing in farmland. And his quote was that it it has potentially substantial upsides and virtually no downsides, that it can be actually even during recessions, American farmland retains its value. Yeah. Going back to people have been doing this forever. It makes sense. Warren Buffett has been investing in farmland for a very long time. Uh, shout out to Omaha. Shout out to Nebraska. Actually, pause. I want to shout out to Nebraska for our women's volleyball team as well. I sent you a reel. Oh my gosh, I, I know. That was so cool. I don't know if everyone has seen it. There's been a lot of social media content uh, around it, but we just set the world record for largest attendance for a volleyball game. We held it in our Husker for football. For any woman's sports. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah. Any, 
I didn't know that. That was just for a while. That makes sense. It'd be for any women's sports. Um, we hosted the volleyball game in our Nebraska Husker football stadium. And if you can go to the volleyball, like Husker social media page or anything like that, it, the content is really cool to see. A lot of it gave me goosebumps. It was just, it was awesome. Our, um, one of our employees, Mitch, he was actually down at the game and he said it was really cool to be a part of. There was like 92,008 mm-hmm. people there, which is crazy. Mm-hmm. Back to the article. Sorry. I it's okay. I liked that little tangent. You mentioned crowdfunding when you <laughs> when you first gave your spiel about this article, you mentioned crowdfunding and I found this part really fascinating. There's um a platform called Acre Trader and it's basically so that even like small-time investors can invest in farmland. So you don't have to go out obviously and have a million dollars to buy, you know, a ton of farmland. You can have as little as 10,000 and you see between 2 to 5% return and then when you really see the return is in 5 or 10 to 15 years when you sell the land. Then there's a big return on your investment. I actually okay. sent that website to Luke to look into. I was like, do we need to be on Acre Trader doing something? <laughs> I did the same thing. I have in my notes. I am like trying to convince Daniel that we should get on board with this. There's some like minimum requirements, but I was like, that's kind of fascinating. And it's all different crops. I think they said they have 11 different types of row crops. They have like vineyards, um, which is actually stay tuned for more information about vineyards later in this episode. But I thought that'd be kind of fun to be able mm-hmm. to like pick a crop you wanted to invest in and where you wanted to. I don't know. It gives you a lot more options. I have never related more to a quote in this article than they said, many farmers who own these lands for decades are certainly asset rich, but may not be cash rich. And I was like, if that does not sum up my life, I'm always like, dear Lucas, husband, can we please be more cash rich and less <laughs> asset rich, please? I thank you. Please, please. <laughs> I know whenever you like, I always feel like in movies, they're like liquidating my assets. I'm like, yeah, mm-hmm. not farming. Mm-mm. Sorry. <laughs> they're pretty tied up. Yeah. Not going anywhere. <laughs> Hopefully. Hopefully. Yeah, I did find the crowdfunding really interesting, though. And then they also talked about historically um, how obviously the most obvious way is to purchase, you know, usable cropland and then rent it out to a farmer like you normally think of. But another one they op- uh, mentioned, which kind of, I don't know, my eyes kind of glossed over reading it. So if you want full juice on it, you guys can go look into it yourself, but it's called REITs. It's um, real estate investment trusts. So you purchase shares of farmland focused in this REIT and it's um, kind of like an organization holding real estate. I don't know. Very interesting. They said that one though is not as um, recession proof because it does follow the stock market. So that one can have a little bit more ups and downs. Um, I did laugh though on the benefits of owning farmland uh, as a part of your investment portfolio portfolio was, um, where is the quote? Excellent source of passive income. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, what is passive about farming? But I know it's they're talking about it on the renter side, but still yeah. it gave me a little chuckle. All right. Well, that's kind of all I had about that one. I feel like we have a lot on the next one. So I'm kind of good with going ahead and moving on. I'm right behind you. But before we do that, we actually want to thank one of our newest sponsors. Pause, please. She has a glass of wine, folks. She has a glass of wine wine. in my Enchantment Vineyards glass. So um, our new sponsor is actually Enchantment Vineyards. It is a family-owned winery right here in my hometown of Portales, New Mexico. And they actually produce about 30,000 bottles a year, which I thought was crazy. They grow about five acres of grapes. And they grow all sorts of different things, tons of different wines. I personally love their Chardonnay. Uh, but they put 
every single bottle is hand harvested. So it's really incredible. I'm actually going to go out next week and see some of their harvesting. So I'll share to discover ag stories. Um, And then some fun facts that she sent me. New Mexico is actually the oldest wine growing region in the United States, thanks to the Spanish conquistadors. And then grapes are a low water crop. Isn't that really fascinating? They don't use a ton of water, so it can be grown in like very dry climates. And then when I was talking with Enchantment Vineyards about this, um, Megan is the person that is running that company. Um, She told me the coolest thing about how good wine is all about the soil. Like if your soil is really good, your grapes are really good. And one of the things that was kind of crazy is in the US, wines do not have to say if they have additives. So if you are getting that $10 bottle of wine, chances are it has a ton of additives to make it taste better because it may not be great grapes. So Enchantment Vineyards actually uh, has absolutely no additives. It is just grapes. And we have an amazing discount code for you guys. Discover 20 is our discount code. It gets you 20% off and they ship nationwide. So you can go onto Enchantment Vineyards. It'll be in our show notes and you can get yourself some really great wine and know where it came from. Um, It's actually a fully woman-owned company and winery. So I think that's kind of a fun little fact too. There's so much I love about them. There's so much I am happy that they are a part of the Discover family now. I did know about the additives on wine. It's uh, I think it's starting to become a lot more I think maybe aware, I guess, if you're kind of like in the wine circle. Um, so I love that Enchantments has no additives. And Luke, I don't know, recently, like in the last day or two, watched uh, one of the documentaries on Netflix on the Blue Zones. And so now he's on like this wine kick because <laughs> well, they talked about just, it on the Blue Zones. <laughs> so I'll be talk- placing an order to uh, appease and fulfill his um, goal to be a centurion. So enchantment vineyards thank you for helping my husband out yeah they currently today when i was texting with her to get ready for this podcast they have 700 gallons of chardonnay in the tank they're currently processing so he'll have to maybe the next batch will be red wine luke but yeah you'll have to get on and get your order in and then we can do wine tasting maybe together while oh, we that'd be record. so fun i'm yeah, really so. jealous that you're gonna see the harvest i think that'd be so cool it looks fascinating. I They brought in all their equipment from Italy to process the wine and everything. Uh, and so it's super cool. I will, I'll share all the details. So enchantment code discover 20. All right, you guys getting into our last and final article that you need to discover this week title France has so much extra wine. It's paying farmers 215 million to destroy it. To put that into perspective, that is about 400 million bottles of extra wine. Mm-hmm. Like this is not a small amount of wine. No, it's 7% of last year's production. And I Googled it um, to see like in the perspective of how much they're making on the grand scheme of things. And France makes about seven to 8 billion. So it's um, a decent amount. It's a lot of wine. Uh, and other deets, I guess, is it's specific to the Bordeaux and Languedoc. Ooh, I am not French. Languedoc <laughs> regions. <laughs> yeah, we'll go with that. Nailed it. <laughs> Oh my gosh. All right. Diving into why the big question. Uh, We are not economic girlies. If you guys remember a few episodes back, Tara spent, I think, what, one day in econ and then you tested out. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I stayed in it first semester, but you guys, I barely passed. So Um, not our best uh, suits, but I feel pretty safe saying it's basically supply and demand. They are artificially adjusting the supply. They're hoping to stabilize prices, thus helping out the quote unquote struggling winemakers 
In the words of Marc Fresno, who's the French agriculture minister, he said the money to destroy surplus stock is meant to stem a collapse of prices and allow winemakers to find sources of revenue again. Yeah, I also thought that it was crazy, the part about how the money will allow wine producers to actually distill the alcohol from their surplus wines. Uh, and they would turn it into pure alcohol, which can be sold at a loss to makers of like hand sanitizer, perfume, and other industries. I had no idea you could like take wine and like turn it into hand sanitizer. Yeah, that is one thing I want to point out because I feel like from the headlines, it's a misconception that they are just throwing the wine away. And it's not. It's basically like a buyback program kind of, I think, um, with the money. Like you said, the producers are to distill the alcohol and then turn it into other things. So it's not like they're just dumping bottles. I mean, I get that it's like used for different purposes. And theoretically, I guess people would have issue with the money going to something like this, but it's still being like processed into something else. This isn't the first time that Francis had to do this. They've been having this problem. So I thought some of the numbers were kind of crazy as I'm always bringing those stats. Declining red wine sales have fallen 32% in France over the last 10 years. More drinkers are turning to either rosé, beer, or even non-alcoholic options. So this is kind of they're in like crisis over there. Yeah, it said that there was a um, more competitive market, a lingering pandemic problems, the ongoing war in Ukraine, consumer inflation, and then like you just talked about changes in drinking habits throughout the country. So a lot of reasons why wine is down. I also saw that it's down in other areas. They mentioned Australia. They even mentioned the US having some problems like with climate change and growing. I don't know. This is part of a second initiative though, in June, the European Union gave France um, an X amount of money to destroy almost 80 gallons of wine, and they just added this um, extra amount to that. They also gave funds to the clearing or technically the pulling up of over 23,000 acres worth of vines in the Bordeaux growing region. And they're giving those funds for grape farmers who want to use their land for olives or other crops, which I thought was extremely fascinating. Yeah, I loved the conversation about using the wine instead of just like turning it into hand sanitizer, figuring out how they can transition to some other kind of um, crop could be really cool. I thought this was so crazy. In 2020, per person in France, they drank about 5.6 liters of alcoholic drinks. In 1960, they were drinking 20 liters of alcohol. So that's a massive decrease, which is kind of funny to me because I feel like we see so much about how like people are drinking more, people are drinking more since the pandemic. And so I just didn't see how those, I, they just was a very like juxtaposition of what I thought was going to be the case. I feel like I see on so many accounts I follow online, sober curious. Like I feel like that's kind of a new thing. I didn't, I thought that was more of like a US, (laughs) US trend. I didn't realize it was kind of like a I guess global one. I was diving social media as I always do. And there was one of the funniest comments that it said, quote, teachers will take it. Ha ha ha. <laughs> it still makes me laugh. Back to school. <laughs> they, they're going to need that break. God bless all of our teachers that are tuning in. Thank you for what you do in the classrooms every day. If we could send you the, you know, millions of bottles of wine that, um, France is wasting, I would do it in a heartbeat for you. Yeah, for sure. France is one of the largest wine producing countries in the world. And so one of the things too is to keep in mind, like I feel like it's very much a part of their culture. So this is kind of 
just the whole thing seems kind of crazy that they're having this much of like a decrease. Like there was a lot of parts of this that they talked about wanting to kind of preserve that culture and make sure that, you know, Chardonnay, that's a region of France, not just a wine and like keeping that heritage intact, even though they're going through this. And I do feel like that's also a movement. I mean, Italy banned the lab-based meat and they're moving to banning processed, I think, or ultra processed in like attempt to um, maintain that food heritage. So I do feel like that's at the forefront of a lot of European minds. Um, going back to preservation, it reminded me of something that I also read in one of the comments. There were questions about why not hold on to it and just control the supply that way. And they kind of referenced like the underground storage of cheese that the U.S. dairy farmers did. And I thought that was really interesting because I don't know the answer to that about why France couldn't just hold on to that wine and I guess like control the markets in that manner instead of doing what they're choosing to do in this route. Well, I definitely am not an expert in this, but I would guess that some of it, like I feel like that cheese in the United States went a lot of times to like uh, publicly funded things like school lunch programs or like prisons or hospitals. And I don't know that those are, you know, we're not going to be serving wine in schools, prisons and hospitals. So it could be problematic. I don't know. But I would guess it's something kind of like that, right? Like the cheese was also like a part of, you know, if you're if you had like kind of like a doomsday prepper, right? That there'd be like some extra food. Although if listen, if it's the end of the world, I'd like a little um, wine stashed away for me personally. With your cheese? With my cheese. I want both. Uh, There are 200 different kinds of wines in France. Yeah. I have a ton of fun facts. Do you want to move into the fun facts or do you have anything left about the article? I have one more economic fact and then we can move into fun facts. The French wine market is worth uh, about $15 billion and the exports are worth about $18 billion. So not a small drop of wine in the wine bottle. I wonder what that will do to their, if that will affect their exportation at all, this like the decrease in wine, probably not. Cause I guess they have an oversurplus of it. Right. Right. Um, okay. My fun facts. You stole the first one. France is one of the largest wine producing countries in the world. They produce 8 billion bottles each year, making it the leading um, producer. Unlike foreign wines, you kind of touched on this when you were marketing for um, enchantment wines, but unlike foreign wines, which are labeled according to the grape used, French wines are labeled following the soil on which they are produced. The towns and regions where the grapes are grown correspond to the notion of terror, terroir, which is fundamental to French wine. I think they actually coined that word and term. It refers to the combination of natural factors, so like orientation to the sun, humidity, temperature variation, etc., with a particular type of vineyard that alters the flavor of the wine. This is why you can have the same grape variety that is planted in different regions, but the wine can be different from each other. I thought that was so fascinating. I feel like now would be a good time to mention that we are going to do a mini interview actually with the owner of Enchantment Vineyard. We're going to bring her on. And I think that just based on the conversations I've had with her, I think it's going to be fascinating. I think you guys are going to love it because it's so cool about the whole soil and how it makes the grapes taste and how just every single thing like grapes are very fickled crop, I feel like. Fickle. Did you know that Dom Perion is an actual freaking person? No, I did not know that. Yeah, and not just a person, but he was a monk and he invented champagne. I had no idea. Who knew? Mm-hmm. Great fact. Way to I, bring it. Thank you. So it said that the Perion monk um, was a monk that was the pioneer of winemaking techniques. And actually, a lot of the monks contributed to early wine and, like, uh, I guess, advancements in it. They experimented a lot. But he is the one that accidentally discovered champagne. And this is my favorite thing. When he did it, it 
they said he was, you know, quote unquote, to have said, come quickly. I am drinking stars. Dom Perignon. Wow. I know. Guy. That I just magical. Isn't there isn't there some rule too that like you can't say champagne unless it's from the champagne region of yes. France or something? There's I have like heard that. Crazy regulations on what you can call different things. My last one, my last fun fact is that there was a plant eating insect that almost single-handedly ruined all French wine. It was back in 1860. It was a tiny little insect called pylorexia. And it nearly destroyed the entirety of France's vineyards. Thankfully, however, the good old U.S. stepped in and saved the day by offering our own resistant rootstock to graft their alien grapevines onto, and uh, which is crazy. But France is still in certain regions um, seeing effect- effects from that. So certain ones have about half of their original size before the outbreak. That's crazy. Do you remember a couple of years ago when the fires were in like Napa and we have a friend who mm-hmm. grows wine grapes and um like the ash caused a lot of damage to the wines in that region because it when it fell on it yeah it's crazy the grafting thing is crazy how they can graft one piece of a plant to another vine i think that's actually so interesting when it comes to agriculture the grafting me too really fascinating Um, my last question for you about this is have you ever taken a wine class i feel like you have for some reason have you like a wine drinking no, etiquette I have, class? I have, I have not, but Daniel did. Daniel took oh. an entire semester of wine drinking in college. Oh my gosh, of course he did. Really putting his parents' <laughs> in his tuition money year. to work. <laughs> it was his super senior year, I think. I'll have to ask him what year it was. But it was on a Friday afternoon every single week. And he said they would go and they would do all these things. He said every time they'd be like, okay, which wine is the most expensive? And he'd pick the cheapest wine saying it tasted <laughs> the best. That's Poor hilarious Dan. because my superpowers, I pick the most expensive thing all the time. Like, you know, those people have like this or that and it is like the dupe and the most expensive one every single time. I want the most expensive one. <laughs> you just know I what you super, want. Sniff it out. <laughs> I sniff the dollars out. Good thing I am uh, asset rich, <laughs> cash poor. <laughs> well, we should just keep this in mind when we hang out with Daniel. If you have an expensive bottle and a cheap one, give him the cheap one and we'll take the expensive one. I was going to say we're going to be together, actually, discos this weekend. If you want to tune in for some fun in our stories, Tara and I will be uh, vacationing with our husbands uh, as well as uh, another couple. Uh, but maybe we can do a reel and have Dan give us, um, he can be like the wine connoisseur and teach us the you know proper way to drink wine. I mean, we've had a lot of wine. Conver- I don't think we've talked about wine ever on this podcast. So we have to do some fun things with wine this weekend. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm determined. So we'll bring it to the Discover page. Consider it broughten. All right. Well, I think that wraps us up for today. I want to thank our sponsor once again, Perk Propane Education and Research Council. We will link them in the show notes Show notes if you want to learn more about propane. So thank you to them for sponsoring this episode. And we will see you guys on Thursday.